Our passage this week, it might sound familiar. It's not the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we've encountered a miracle out on the Sea of Galilee. Back in chapter 4, the apostles are crossing in a boat. Jesus is asleep. A great storm comes. Their lives are at risk. Jesus wakes up, rebukes the wind and the ocean, and it calms. And suddenly, for the first time in Mark's Gospel, the apostles are finally asking the right question. Who is this? It takes a dramatic rescue for them to finally ask, who is this Jesus? And it's the question at the center of Mark's gospel. It's the question that Mark is wanting us to ask, and it's the question he's trying to answer. But now in chapter 6, we encounter another miracle story on the Sea of Galilee. And it's easy to look at this story, take note of the similarities, uh, and conclude it's just another rescue story. But that's not the case. It's not a rescue at all. Yes, Jesus walks on water, but that has nothing to do with rescuing the apostles. It's actually an epiphany, a revealing, a telling of who he is. You see, the rescue in chapter 4, they started asking the right question, who is Jesus? And now the epiphany on the water in chapter 6 is the answer. Jesus is saying, you're asking the right question, here's the answer. He's making himself known to the apostles. But here's the catch. They don't get it. Why is that? So this is the big idea I want to explore this morning. The greatest threat in our lives are not the storms that come our way, but our hardness of heart. And Jesus came not to just rescue us from the storm, but to rescue us from our own hearts. So open your Bibles with me this morning uh, to Mark chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. The other day, uh, Ansley made me sit on the couch. And she goes, Daddy, you sit there. Okay. And she goes to the other side of the living room and starts painting. And and looks at me from the other side of the living room and goes, Daddy, you sit there. So I figure, okay, I'll sit here. A couple minutes go by. I come, I get up to go see what she's doing. She says, no, Daddy, you sit there. It was clear my daughter needed some space. Uh, the separation that's happening here between Jesus and the disciples is emphasized three times in three verses. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Jesus had taken leave of them. The boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. Sounds like Jesus just needs some alone time from the disciples. And can you blame them? They haven't been all that helpful. But that's not entirely what's going on. The geographical space between Jesus and his disciples is so that Jesus can prepare to overcome the spiritual space that still stands between him and his apostles. Well, how do we know this? Well, first, Jesus ascends a mountain and the apostles go out on a sea. You know, these are the facts, but in the scriptures, they're also full of symbolic meaning. Mountains are where you go to encounter God. They're thin places. They're spiritual places. But the sea, the ocean, it's chaos. And so Jesus ascends a mountain to pray, and what do the disciples do? They go out on a sea and they toil. And only three times in his gospel does Mark mention Jesus withdrawing to pray. 
The first is in chapter 1, Jesus withdraws to pray, and then he returns, and he says what? Let us go to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And then in chapter 14, Jesus goes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's preparing to make way toward the cross. Each time Jesus withdraws to pray, he comes out re-anchored in why he came. And so when we see that he's withdrawing to pray, we're supposed to take note. Something significant is about to happen. Verse 48, Jesus saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. You'll note that life for the apostles in the absence of Jesus is toil. And we need to also highlight that their lives aren't at risk. This isn't the same as the great storm they previously faced. Mark would draw that out. They're just having a really difficult time. But Jesus, he's not blind to their struggle. And maybe that's all you need to hear this morning. That Jesus sees you in your struggle. You may or may not be sinking, but you're toiling and you're working and you're struggling and you're wondering if God sees you. He sees you. And maybe you just need to rest in that truth this morning. Mark goes on in verses 48 through 50. About the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. It's 3 a.m. The apostles' muscles would be aching. They've been taking shifts. You know, exhaustion is setting in. And then Jesus came to them. And that's often the way it is. God doesn't meet us in our strength. He meets us in our weakness. But when Jesus comes to them in this occasion, it's no ordinary fashion. He's walking on the sea. And they saw him walking on the sea. And we need to talk about miracles for a moment. Because when we're talking about Jesus walking on water, it didn't, well, look like this. You know, it's not like Swedish Jesus with perfect hair uh, and calm storms, you know, coming to embrace you. But we do need to pause here for a minute or two because maybe you find the miracles in the scriptures to be embarrassing. They're kind of like your dad's sweatpants. You don't want to stare at them too long or at all. And this isn't <laughs> welcome to the morning. Uh, but this isn't some sort of magic trick. You know, Jesus isn't standing in shallow water performing an optical illusion. There's no one underneath the water holding their breath so he can walk on their hands. Mark's not bashful about this. He's explicit. This was a miracle. Jesus walked on water, he says, and the disciples saw it. And what we're reading then is an eyewitness testimony that was reported to Mark firsthand, most likely from Peter. But there's Christian scholars who even say that miracles are just the product of ancient minds who didn't know better. And so maybe you feel some freedom to say, let's just get to the spiritual meeting and not worry about whether it was a miracle or not. Or maybe you struggle to even consider the validity of the Christian faith because it's founded on the basis that miracles happen. Either way, both viewpoints are saying miracles don't happen. But as C.S. Lewis said, a naturalistic Christianity leaves out all that is specifically Christian. As long as you're open to the idea that there might be a God, you have to be open to the idea that there's miracles. 
Miracles would be child's play to God. If we're talking about the God who created all that is, who set all that is into motion, who sustains all things by his word, of course he can work a miracle if he so desires. However, if you're going to wrestle with a miracle in the scriptures, don't start with walking on water, as interesting as it is. If you're going to wrestle with a miracle, wrestle with the resurrection because it's on the resurrection that our faith stands or falls. If Jesus resurrected physically from the grave, then we can work backwards from there and be like, yeah, he probably walked on water. I can accept that. But if he didn't resurrect from the grave, who cares? Go do something else. Go do something else. So what you need to know then is if you're struggling with the miraculous, if you're struggling with miracles, what we're reading in Mark isn't the product of ancient minds who didn't know any better. The disciples knew people don't ordinarily walk on water. That's why they see it and they're like, it's a ghost. Like that was the best explanation available to them in the moment because they assume people don't usually walk on water. In the same way, When the writers of the gospel say that Jesus was raised from the dead, they know that people do not ordinarily raise from the dead. They're not making something up. They're reporting the facts. They're reporting what they saw. So all of this is to say, Jesus, he saw the apostles. He physically walked on the water out to them. And that's what's going on in this passage. And Mark writes, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. Oh, wait, which is it? Did he mean to come out to them or did he intend to pass them by? Was Jesus like incognito and got caught or was he intending to be seen? Some of you may know, uh, Nanaimo is a city on Vancouver Island that is not nearly as nice as Victoria or any of the other cities on the island, but it is a city on the island. And you may not know this, uh, if you say Nanaimo to a Japanese tourist, they think it's hilarious. Because Nanaimo means seven potatoes. And so they think you're going to the land of seven potatoes. And I have friends who grew up in Nanaimo, and they're doing okay now. And uh, (laughs) they can tell stories of Japanese tourists just dying in laughter because the city's called Nanaimo, seven potatoes. Now, if we see the word Nanaimo, we think, what else could we do? Uh, But if the Japanese see the word Nanaimo, they think, Seven potatoes. Now, if you're from Nanaimo, I love you. Uh, We have a benevolence fund. We're happy to help you however you need. I'm just kidding. Nanaimo's great. In the same way, when it says Jesus meant to pass them by, we think, oh, he's in stealth mode. Jesus doesn't want to get caught. He's just doing something fun while the disciples aren't paying attention. But that turn of phrase meant something very, very different to the ancient mind, to the readers of Mark's gospel. Let me show you a couple of passages. There's an encounter between God and Moses, which was our first reading in Exodus 33. Verse 18, we read, Moses said, please show me your glory. I'm sorry, I got to pause. Have you ever prayed that? God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Is that the desire of your heart? Have you ever just prayed, God, show me your glory? Moses prays this. And what does God say? I will make all of my goodness pass before you. All of my goodness will 
pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then a couple verses later, Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. There's also an encounter between Elijah and God. We read in 1 Kings 19.11, God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. What's happening when God passes by? What's happening to Moses and Elijah, two of the most cherished prophets of Israel's history? When God passes by, they receive a revelation of who he is. These are called epiphanies. God is definitively making himself known to them. And with Moses in particular, God passes it by and reveals himself in a revolutionary way that becomes the new baseline for understanding who God is. This is the bare minimum. The God that we worship is no less than this revelation, and it has been that way ever since it happened. He's revealing all of his goodness, slow to anger, compassionate, merciful, steadfast love. So back to our passage. Jesus meant to pass them by. What do you think it means? In no small way, Jesus is acting as God. He's doing what only God can do. All of the imagery not so subtly points to Jesus intending to reveal that he is God. Jesus intending to reveal all of his goodness and why he came and what he intends to do and where he's going. But what happens? Look at verse 49. They saw him walking on the sea and thought it was a ghost and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Even when the apostles are afraid and confused and don't get it, that doesn't stop Jesus. He tries again. He calms the apostles and he says, Take heart. It's I, do not be afraid. It's literally, take courage, I am, do not be afraid. Again, we might not see it immediately, but Jesus is still trying to reveal himself to the apostles. He goes back to the basics. He goes back to the first time God revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush. What's the name of the Lord? I am. I am. You see, in this moment, he's not coming up to the apostles and being like, Look, don't freak out. It's just me, blowing, floating Jesus. Uh, he's saying, I am. He is using the divine name for himself. He's trying to show the apostles he is God. And to drive the point home, he says, do not be afraid. This command shows up over and over in the scriptures. Who says it? God. When does, it say, when does he most often say it? when he's revealed himself in such a profound way that people freak out in fear. Do not be afraid. You see, Jesus, he starts by trying to pass the disciples by, trying to definitively make himself known in a way that will revolutionize their understanding of God, that will become the new baseline for understanding all of God's goodness. And when they don't get it, he turns to them and comes to them and still tries to make himself known. 
And so there's some relief there for us. Even when we don't understand Jesus, even when we miss what he's trying to do in our lives or in the world, he turns and he comes to us and he tries again. He will walk forward with us from where we are and into where we need to be. He tries again even when we fail. And so Jesus, he gives the apostles another shot at understanding. And what happens? Verse 51 and 52. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Come on, guys. Like, seriously, apostles. Work with him here. Like, we need, can we sit in the frustration a little bit? I can think of a comparable frustration in my life. You can put anything in front of Maggie. I'm not joking. Anything at all. And she will eat it. Julia and I are legitimately concerned that she might not have taste buds. Because she's totally impartial to food. The other day, she ate a lemon wedge with the peel and didn't even flinch, no cute baby face, nothing. And then I left my coffee on the table and she ate the coffee grinds. She will eat anything, she's a beast. But Ansley is the opposite. Wanna know what Ansley eats? Hot dogs, anything with sugar, bread and butter, preferably with sugar and cinnamon on it. But anything else, no way. We will cook meals. We'll try multiple meals in one sitting. We'll be like the firm parents. We're like, you can't leave the table until you eat. And she's like, I'll do what I want. And she walks off. You know, like she's almost three. What do you do? It's like a reverse hostage negotiation where you're negotiating with the hostage instead of the terrorist. And it's like, we just want you to live. And the, the hostage is like, what are you talking about? Stockholm's great. Have you seen the sights? And, and it, It's the same with Ansley. We just want you to live. We just want you to have nutrients. We just want you to eat and not be a walking hot dog covered in sugar. But she will not budge. Jesus is working with the apostles and they will not budge. They don't give him an inch. He tries twice offering them this profound revelation that will transform their understanding of God in the world and they will not budge. Mark says they were utterly astounded. It's not awe. They're utterly utterly in a state where they cannot comprehend what's going on. They have no framework or category for understanding what they're seeing. Then Mark says they did not understand about the loaves. He's cueing us into the context. We have to remember this is taking place immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. And again, in that scene, Jesus was acting as God. In the wilderness with Israel, who fed Israel with the manna? God. So when Jesus blesses and breaks and gives and multiplies the loaves, he's acting in a way that only God can act. He's doing the things that only God can do. And the apostles, they didn't understand then and they don't understand now. They didn't understand the loaves and they do not understand the walking on water. And it's frustrating. You would think of all the people who should understand, it should be the apostles. They're on the inside track. They're experiencing things that many of us dream of experiencing. They have firsthand access to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus even said, I'm giving you the secrets of the kingdom. Some of you might be thinking, if I saw what they saw, without reservation, I would believe in Jesus. I would do the Jesus thing. But Mark is trying to get us to acknowledge something that we don't want to acknowledge, something that we don't want to admit to ourselves. 
Experience does not mean that faith will follow. Knowledge does not mean that faith will follow. Miracles do not mean that faith will follow. Experience with Jesus, knowledge about Jesus, miracles from his hands, as good as those things can be, will only take us far, but they will never negate the need for us to have a personal faith in him. The apostles do not yet have that faith. They're unable to see what Jesus is trying to show them. But on the other hand, how could they see it? How could anyone comprehend God standing before them as a person? You see, our point of history, I think we've become so accustomed to this idea that we really miss its shock value. It's incomprehensible. If there's a God, to believe God was a person, to believe that God was only a person once for all of history, how could you grasp that moment happening before your eyes? And this is why over and over in Mark's gospel, we keep coming back to something Jesus taught in Mark 4. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. They may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. The apostles, they still don't see. They still don't hear. They don't have faith. And in a sense, how could we expect them to see or hear and understand something as unfathomable as God making himself known through a person, making a personal appearance? It's not a natural conclusion. I don't expect anyone in this room to naturally come to conclude that God was fully man and fully God in one person, two natures. You don't just sit under an apple tree and come up with that. But not seeing and not hearing, these are just the symptoms. These are just the symptoms. What is the root issue? Mark says, verse 52, but their hearts were hardened. It's important to know that heart in the Hebraic worldview is not the same as heart when we think of it. It's not this like amorphous, floaty, emotive center where, you know, we feel something and it comes and it changes. It's not the emotive center. It's not emotions. Uh, Bishop Todd Hunter uh, says the heart in Scripture is our inner controlling mechanism. Our inner controlling mechanism. I love how technical it is. The inner controlling mechanism. It's our core decision-making place. Now, the decisions you make in the heart or the affect They will involve your mind, you have to think. They'll involve your emotions, they'll influence. But it's that center, you know that center where you're actually driving yourself and making decisions. That is the heart. It's the center of our will. And so the apostles' heart, their inner controlling mechanism is hardened. They will not allow God into that space. And indeed, they cannot allow him in there. And why is that? Well, maybe we should start by taking stock of our own hearts. We care a great deal about our physical hearts. If you went to a doctor to have you know, a checkup and they said, you got a bad ticker, uh, it doesn't matter what they say you'll do. You're going to do it unless they say give up ice cream. Then you're just going to die happy. But you will do what the doctor says. If you know your life is on the line, you will do whatever. But when it comes to our spiritual hearts, If we're sick, it carries infinitely more importance, infinite consequences. And yet, do we take it with the same seriousness as we would with our physical hearts being ill? 
Now, how do we know if we have a hard heart? What are the symptoms? Well, first of all, is it even a concern? If you're not worried about whether your heart is hard towards God, then it's most likely you have a hard heart. People with hard hearts don't worry about having hard hearts. And when someone has a hard heart, they cannot see who Jesus really is. They might witness a lot of incredible things. They might know a lot. They might, but they will uh, remain blind to what all of that really means. Similarly, a hard heart, it's the same thing that will drive you to deny the miracles, which is really to deny the revelation of Jesus. You say, this isn't who Jesus is. He can't be the son of God. You make him into something he's not, just like the apostles. He's a ghost. Today, people say, ah, he's a good moral teacher, but he's not God. Or they say, you know, he's the cosmic Christ consciousness. He's, he's this kind of nondescript new age entity who unifies humanity, whatever. You'll let him be anything and everything but the son of God. And we can even be deceived about the status of our own hearts because we can know a lot about God. We can have the right answers. We can have moments of religious experience. But when push comes to shove, we choose ourselves over God every single time. Because our hearts, that core decision-making place, still only makes decisions for our own self-interest. Your life still revolves around you and your own interests and your own desires. You see, a hard heart, it can learn and learn and learn about God, but it will not and cannot do what pleases God because it will not and cannot let God into that inner space. But let's not miss the good news in this passage. Jesus came to heal our hardness of heart. And that might be putting it too softly. In, there, in our world, there's a lot of ways you treat a, a, a bad heart. Uh, often it can be dealt with with medication or changes in diet, exercise. You know, the doctor will prescribe a holistic lifestyle change so that your heart can start to regain health and wholeness. In the same way, you can read that you have a hard heart. So what do you do? Oh, I'll read more. I'll examine myself more. I'll try to understand why it's hard and why I have this proclivity to resist God. I'll overcome it. I'll be more open. You prescribe a holistic lifestyle change, thinking that your heart will eventually soften if you do this. But that is not the nature of our condition. Our hearts are shot. They're done. They're bad. They're hard. No, you might be thinking, well, get the paddle. Shock it back to life. You know, revive me, Jesus. But Jesus is not in the business of reviving hearts that are barely alive. He wants to remove our hearts entirely. He wants to perform a transplant, so to speak. He wants to give us new hearts, not revive broken ones. Jesus, he didn't just come to rescue us from the storms we face in the world. Jesus came to rescue us from ourselves. He came to rescue us from our hearts that are so hard that they cannot live in God's ways. And when Jesus, he meant to pass the apostles by, he was going to show them what he really came to do. All of the imagery, and we don't have time to go into it, points to the new exodus. That Jesus is paving the new way into God's saving power, that this will be a new defining moment of God's goodness and salvation for all of humanity. And he's paving the way forward into the new covenant, the promises of the new exodus. If we jump forward to Mark 14, 24, 
Jesus, he, it's the, the Last Supper, and he institutes what has now become the sacrament of communion. And what does he say? This is the blood of the covenant. Which covenant? The new covenant. And what's the promise of the new covenant? What is the defining mark of this new covenant that Jesus is paving a way into for us? Ezekiel 36, 26. And I, this is God speaking, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. How does Jesus do that? Through his blood. This is the blood poured out for the covenant. Jesus pours his heart out for us. His heart is pierced. He bleeds for us to offer forgiveness, to cleanse us, to make a way into the new covenant. That often gets missed when we talk about the cross, but the cross is the way in which we are forgiven and sanctified and brought into the promises of God that mark his people. What are the promises? A new heart and his Holy Spirit. You see, without a new heart, we cannot believe in God. We cannot follow God. We cannot do anything that pleases him. We cannot accurately see or hear. And we have to ask to be healed before we can. We have to turn and be forgiven. But when we turn to him in faith, what does that look like? We trust in what Jesus has done for us and not anything that we can do. Because only Jesus can heal our hearts. We can't do it. No one can do it. Nothing can do it. The New Testament calls this also the circumcision of the heart. Good luck trying that. It can't be done with human hands. It has to be done by the hands of Christ who can reach into your soul and replace what is broken and make you whole. Jesus doesn't need you to try to revive your own heart because he wants to give you a new heart. Jesus doesn't need you to try to find some better resolve in your own spirit. He wants to give you his Holy Spirit. He only asks this, turn to him. Turn and be forgiven. But when we say remove our hard hearts, remove our hearts of stone, what happens? What happens? Jesus removes the broken heart, the hard heart, the heart that cannot let God into that space no matter how hard we try. And he gives us a tender and responsive heart. And remember, it's not just a transformed, emotive life. He changes that center where all of a sudden we receive new hearts, we receive his spirit, and we find that we actually now have the freedom to choose God in his ways. It's then that we can see the beauty of God that he has passed us by and revealed his goodness in Christ and his death on the cross and that he is a merciful and compassionate God who will do everything when we've done nothing, who will do what it takes to save us and heal us and make it so that we can follow him and see him and see his love for us. And then he also gives us ears to hear. We actually hear what God asks of us and we have the freedom now to do it. And so we find ourselves desiring things we didn't desire before. We want to seek the well-being of others. 
We want to serve. We want to stop gossiping. We want to share the gospel with people who do not know Jesus. We want to inconvenience ourselves to care for those in need. I could go on and on, but when we receive a new heart from God, all of a sudden, what we want to do starts to change, and we actually have the ability to follow through because His Spirit is working with us and through us. People, if you make me say my own amens, we're just going to be here all morning. Amen? You see, we find our character then starts to change more effortlessly. If you're a hypocrite, you'll be less of a hypocrite. And over time, you'll become more and more compassionate and patient and gracious and kind. You'll see that all these character flaws that previously you just stuffed down and tried to pretend they'll go away in age, God actually starts to transform. But lastly, what about those of us many of us in this room, who have received new hearts, but feel them hardening again. What about us? Well, maybe your heart is hardening because you feel like Jesus has passed you by in the literal sense. You don't feel like he sees you in all your toil and your struggle. Or maybe following Jesus is a real struggle for you and you're doubting if you even have a new heart. Or maybe you feel like your original passion and zeal for Jesus is slowly dimming. This passage shows us that Jesus is eager to meet us where we are. Not the future version of ourselves, not the self that we think we should be by now, but meets us where we are. And even when we fall short, even when we miss it, even when we're struggling, what does Jesus say? Well, what does he say to his apostles who don't even have new hearts yet? Take courage. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. And what comes next? Verse 51. He got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Jesus sees them. He comes to them. He gives his presence. And what is his presence? Peace. Peace amid not having all of the answers. A peace that surpasses understanding. God sees you. He offers himself fully. He offers you peace. And you can have this peace, which will revive your heart. It will revive the tired. It will revive the confused. It will revive your zeal. Peace amid the toil, peace amid the struggle, peace, whatever you're facing. But why is it peace? Because God is with us and God is for us and God has done everything to save us and it's his work and not our own and he's shown us his goodness which becomes the new baseline for how we see ourselves and the world. So we know no matter what, will come, we have the peace of God and we will stand with him on eternity's shores and then we will find the rest we need. But even here and now, when it's hard and it's confusing and you're struggling, Christ wants to give you peace. And how do we receive it? We turn to him. We turn to him and we ask. How is your heart this morning? How is your heart this morning? Let's pray.